share that song because I'm teaching a class in Washington DC on mindfulness and relationships and the first and we're looking at the four elements of true love um, the four Brahma Viharas of loving kindness compassion joy equanimity or inclusiveness and the first class was on loving kindness towards ourself and we didn't have time for me to teach that song um, but for me, it's a song that is really about metta, loving kindness, friendliness, that we can wish for ourselves, that we can wish for others. So if you like that song, and maybe times when you're hard on yourself or um, need to, to feel some kindness towards yourself, you could sing it like a lullaby to yourself. Wishing yourself well. So, <clears throat> the topic I chose for the talk today and our, our day together is how we can heal the past in the present and also take good care of the future by taking good care of the present. So, the present moment contains the past and the future. There's a teaching in Buddhism of the oneness of the three times. <coughs> so all the things that have happened to us in the past are contained in us in the form of seeds. So memories, um, and not just our own individual um, life, but our ancestors, their memories are stored in us as well. So human babies, uh, right from the beginning, have some something in them that makes them afraid of snakes. They have no experience personally with snakes, but any human born knows to be afraid of snakes. So that's collective consciousness. That's something inherited, deeply ingrained in the human psyche from previous generations of ancestors, maybe even pre-human ancestors. 
So our very body in the present moment, not just our mind, but our body is also a product of the past. The past, we can see it in our bodies now. So all the things that we have done in our life with our bodies are reflected in this moment. And also the bodies of our ancestors. That's all in our own bodies. So our bodies, our feelings, our emotions, our mind states, they are manifestations of the past. What we have consumed, what we have lived, and what generations before us have also consumed and lived. Even our dreams are a kind of, sometimes can be a little capsule of the past that emerges, something that we need to digest or some memory, some, some message. So, there, there are ways of relating to the past that are unskillful and ways that are skillful. There's a lot of talk in meditation, dharma, spaces about dwelling in the present, right? Not getting caught in the past. And that's important because uh, actually a lot of our lives are spent dwelling in the past. There's a, a Time Magazine issue that just came out that's all about the science of happiness. And it speaks about how as adults, only 50% of our life is in the present moment. You know, the rest is either caught up in thoughts about the past or projecting planning for the future. And other research has shown that mm, 99% of our thinking is repetitive, negative, and useless. <laughs> Quite a list. <laughs> and so you can imagine that the 50% that we're not in the present is probably not that productive use of our attention to the past. Also, those scientists studying our thoughts have said that we have 70,000 thoughts a day, and most of them we had yesterday. And they're not, not really so useful. But, you know, I'm not anti-thinking, anti I think. <laughs> we don't want to, it's just what the mind does, right? And all we need to do is be aware of it. Like, notice, oh, that's my mind going into the past. That's my mind going into the future. 
And it's, a, it's called a practice for a reason, because we have to practice over and over and over. But so all this time that we spend unhelpfully in the past, it can be very limiting. Um, so in the book, My Stroke of Insight by Jill Bolt Taylor, who she talks, she's a neurobiologist. She describes her process of having a stroke and what happened to her and her brain functioning and how she healed and returned to health. Very interesting book, but one of the things I love that she said in it is that the physiological length of an emotion is 90 seconds. Like the actual length of anger or fear or, you know, embarrassment or guilt or joy or, is 90 seconds. And, and we can see that in kids, right? <laughs> they're like, you know, upset, and then so quickly they can be different. They can be happy, they can be curious, they can be interested. And yet, you know, for so many adults, we might prolong what is naturally just 90 seconds because of our thinking, because of how we dwell on the past. We prolong, especially a negative emotion for, you know, years sometimes it can you know and so that that traumatic event or that you know conflict or that disappointment or that thing we're so embarrassed about or we feel so guilty about it happened one time in fact but we relive it over and over and over again and all the same emotions all the same physiological Cortisone, cortisol, stress hormones, things that attack our immune system, those things replay themselves every time we go back to that moment. It's like, you know, they use the word ruminate for cows. They chew grass, they have several stomachs, they bring it back up, chew it again, swallow it, bring it back up, chew it again, swallow it. We do that. We do that, but we don't have all those stomachs. We don't need to do that to digest that experience, right? Well, maybe we do. Maybe, maybe there's, you know, well, that's what I'm going to talk about, actually. Is there are spaces in which bringing it up is helpful, but we have to be very mindful of the bringing it up and do it on purpose. But when we're just automatically regurgitating, regurgitating, that's not helpful. There's a, a, a very wonderful sutra of the Buddha that's called um, The Four Kinds of Nutriments, The Four Kinds of Food. And he talks about edible food being one kind, sense impression food being another kind of food, where we take in things that we see, things that we hear, movies, books, scenes in the city, conversations music, touch, that's all that sense impression food, sensory food. A third kind of food is the food of volition, the food of what our big intention is for our life, what brings us energy, why do we get up in the morning, you know? Gandhi had this incredible 
volition to end British colonialism in India that gave him tremendous energy, just like food, to, to engage. So many other folks we know in our country and other places that could go, you know, Nelson Mandela, 30 years almost in prison. What kept him going? Was that food of volition? So the fourth kind of food the Buddha spoke about is the food of consciousness. These are the, f- the food of the thoughts that we think, the things that we bring up from our consciousness. And for each of these foods, the Buddha gave very um, pretty dramatic uh, images of how these kinds of food work. I'll just tell you the image of the last one because that's what I... I'm talking about in this moment. He said, it's like a a robber who's been caught. And the king says, go out and stab him 300 times as punishment. He says this to the guards. So they go out and stab the prisoner 300 times. And he's still alive. So they come back to the king and say, well, he's still alive. The king says, "Okay, go out and stab him again 300 times. So the Buddha said, With the food of consciousness, we do that to ourselves. We give ourselves hundreds of stab wounds by what we choose to consume from our consciousness. The things from the past that have happened that we consume over and over again in an unhealthy way. So the Buddha was giving such a dramatic image to say, be careful how you eat from your consciousness. This can be from your own individual consciousness or from your collective consciousness. So, we don't want to live out of the past in ways that limit us in the present. We don't want to be living through a curtain of the past that prevents us from really touching what is beautiful, what is wondrous in the present moment, right? And we do, we do miss a lot of our life, right? Like 50% of our life we miss because we're not in the present. Our past might be so seductively, you know, entrancing to us. So we want, we, we want to figure out how to relate skillfully to the past. Because there is very important material in our past that we want to learn from. And it, it, it's here with us now. There's no escaping it, right? We are the past right now. But how do we engage it skillfully? So we can bring up, so you all have probably heard of the negativity bias that we have. Neuroscience is showing very clearly that because of the way we evolved in being, being beings that could be preyed upon by larger animals in prehistoric times, we have 
survived because our ancestors could survey the environment and quickly pick up anything that was dangerous, that needed to be very well honed, that, that skill. So now, no longer necessarily being you know, prey to a larger animal, although many of us may live in situations where we are prey to other humans. So it's not necessarily, we're not totally in the clear. But neuroscience is showing that because of this way we've evolved, um, our minds stick to negative experiences much more than to positive ones. So we say that our minds are like Velcro to negative and Teflon to positive experiences. They just roll right off of us. And that negative experiences lodge in the long-term memory immediately. But it takes 20 seconds for a positive experience to lodge in our long-term memory. That's a ratio of 20 to 1. That's, you know, big. So you can see how our perspective is kind of skewed, that we're much more receptive to what's negative. We take that in in a much bigger way than what's positive. So um, in order to work, work on that, and, and we can see that in our relationship to the things we decide to consume from our past, right? I mean, I think we, we may all have memories of positive things that we recall from our past, but if I look at myself, I think I probably dwell more on the negative things that happened in the past. Does that ring true for anybody else? It's like more compelling, right? Or if you go on a trip and it's, you know, a really nice trip, but there's a few things that didn't go well. That are, are those the things that you focus on <laughs> that you remember? It can't happen that way. Um, so we need to work on that negativity bias, and it's possible to work on that, you know? It's, it's the same in our relationships, like those that have studied what really healthy couples do and how they stay together and stay happily together, is that they, they have a ratio of five appreciations to one criticism. They, they praise each other much more often than they criticize each other. And they said in this research that they're really happy couples, like the super happy couples, their ratio is 20 to 1, which actually is the balance of that earlier, right? 20 seconds for a positive experience to lodge in long-term memory. So, so one of the ways we can relate skillfully to the past is to purposely bring up positive experiences from the past, because they are there. And when we remember them, we relive them in the same way that we relive our negative experiences. And remembering a time of connection, a time of laughter. And what happens when you remember a funny moment? What happens on your face? You smile. Oh, you're reliving that. You might even burst into some spontaneous giggles, right? Out of nowhere. Has that happened to you? 
You're just on the that bus on the metro and you remember some funny thing a child said to you and you laugh, right? So those good uh, hormones and chemicals circulate through your body and bring healing and bring relaxation. So there's a, a, um, a um, TED Talk and... Uh, It's called The Happiness Advantage, Linking Positive Brains to Performance by Sean Anker. So much good research happening now on positive psychology and all the ways we can cultivate health. And a lot of it, a lot of the practices are, are ones that have been done in spiritual communities for millennia. But um, in that talk, that TED Talk, he mentions five uh, evidence-based, so each of these five things has been studied in numerous studies to increase happiness. And um, sorry, I didn't prepare to write it on the board, but I can write it later and post it up if you want. So the five things that we should do every day to increase our happiness our exercise, some form of movement, meditating or praying, which is sort of exercise for the mind, clearing out, getting circulation in our minds. That's the second one. The third one is to be aware of three things that we're grateful for. So gratitude is a huge uh, source of happiness. The fourth one is to do a random act of kindness, to reach out to someone without any expectation of something in return. And the fifth one is to journal a happy moment. So something happened during the day that might have brought you joy. It could have been as small as passing someone on the street and they smiled and you smiled. Or remembering that you held the door for someone. It could be very, very subtle, but you write about it. And writing about it is a practice of skillfully bringing up the past. Something helpful, something good from the past. And so in this research, they say, the same experiences that you had in that happy moment in your day, you have again when you journal about it. And if you share about it with someone else, bonus points. You know, you, you, then you nourish happiness in them, and, and that experience lives longer. Right? Um, an interesting example of this, too. A long time ago, I listened to some tapes by Deepak Chopra, and he recounted this scientific experiment where People in their 70s, 80s were taken on a, like a retreat, but the retreat was all, um, everything was furnished and designed to be from like the 50s or the 40s from when they were young, young people. And the music and the food and there were diners and there was, you know, just cars that were from that time period and they were engaging in, you know, 
games and social activities and but all of everything it was like a little you know back back to the past a time bubble thing and so the before the experiment they t- they took all these tests that measured the aging process and then after they did the same tests and they found that you know across the board everyone had reversed their aging process that the, that all the measures of aging had gone backwards during this time yeah. but just another you know way of seeing how the past can be accessed for good for healing um and, and this is not at all uh, advocating that we shouldn't get old. <laughs> uh, we live in a culture that really uh, despises aging, right? And makes us afraid of aging and emphasizes youth. So I'm not telling that story to say we should all be trying to reverse our aging process. I think it's very wonderful to age beautifully and gracefully, and I think this practice helps us to do that. But this story is really to share how we can skillfully access things that allow us to age beautifully, with joy, with um, health and wisdom. So I want to tell you a story about an experience I had of how um, dwelling really in the present moment, I was able to heal something from the past. So I've been talking about how we can bring up positive things from the past, but there are things that have really caused suffering in our lives that are in the past and that are in the present in this kind of blockage form. So what do we do with that? We don't want to go back and live in those spaces and, and lose the present moment, right? But we do want to heal those pains from our past. So how do we do that? So I, my experience is that we can do that and that we can do that by grounding ourselves firmly in the present moment as we turn to those suffering, that pain from the past. So I was uh, on my first long retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. I was about 23, 24. And it was a three-week retreat. And Thai, we call Thich Nhat Hanh Thai, just means teacher in Vietnamese. Thai was teaching about the touchings of the earth practice, where we get in touch with our ancestors, and we learn to see that our ancestors are in us and always available to us. So we are connecting with our blood ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, our land ancestors, those who built our country, and also offering our energy to our loved ones and also to those who have hurt us. But in this practice, we we meditate deeply to see what are the qualities of our the people that raised us, and those who came before them that we have, because we're in 
only a manifestation, a continuation of the folks who went before us, who gave birth to us, who raised us. So our strengths are the strengths that they had. Right? Our weaknesses are the weaknesses that they had too. So we don't need to be proud of all of our good talents and qualities because that's not really ours. We're like a stream. <laughs> we just continue the stream. And we also don't need to be ashamed or feel badly about our weaknesses, our unskillfulness, because that also was something we didn't choose. We didn't pick to have those weaknesses. So, um, so I was contemplating this in this retreat, and, I, and it was a free time, and I went into this. Our meditation hall was in the big gym of this university where the retreat was. So I went and I sat, and I was contemplating how am I a continuation of my ancestors? And um, just, I, be, I got in touch with my father's parents. Uh, so my, my parents uh, were in an interracial marriage. My mother's African-American from Chicago. My dad's European-American from Texas. And they uh, met and married in the 60s and and my, my mother's family embraced this and embraced my brother and I. And my father's family um, rejected him. And he was no longer part of the family and didn't see his parents after he married my mother uh, until they divorced. So I didn't meet my, that side of my family, my, parent, my father's parents, until I was eight something after my parents divorced. So in reflecting on these, you know, what were the things that I had from my ancestors as I was sitting there, I was suddenly in touch with a very deep rage towards my grandfather, my father's father. Um, And just to go back and complete a little bit of the story, once we did meet them, they were very kind to my brother and I. We visited them regularly. They did their best to take care of us and, um, and uh, provide for us. So I didn't have like negative experiences of our interactions, but it was really like this deep indignation that they would have not met us for that long. We were their only grandchildren this sense of being rejected because of this color of my skin, the color of my mother's skin. And so this um, just very deep anger and deep sadness, and I just was sort of surprised sitting there that I was just crying and crying and crying. And kind of for the first time, meeting the depth of this emotion, I hadn't, you know, was down there, but hadn't had a chance to arise. And I was meditating with it. I was aware. I was sitting there. I was aware. I was breathing. And I was feeling it. I was really feeling it with mindfulness. Like, wow, this is so deep. It hurts so much. And I let it be there. I let space be there for it. 
And it was like the, the little girl in me that didn't know how to express those feelings, but felt them, was allowed to then share, you know? As we know, we know that we're connected to people, even if we don't see them, even if we don't have a, a relationship with them. So this sense of separation, it could arise, it could be held. So I let that process take its time to, to just feel. It was like a storm that just needed to arise, and it, and it began to pass, because I wasn't pushing it away. When we push our strong emotions away, we make them last longer. I was just letting it be there, and allowing it, honoring it. And um, as it began to subside, there was just this awareness that was arising in me of, you know, somehow like I could get through the upper layer of all of the anger, all of the sadness, the pain, and then below that was like, well, why did this happen this way? It was like the beginnings of looking deeply, like these things don't happen in a vacuum, right? And I just was reflecting on my grandfather and how, you know, he was also a stream from his ancestors. He didn't choose to be raised in a racist society. He, he was a product of his time. And I don't think he had many influences that would have swayed him to see things differently. And when I saw that, that he was also a victim of ignorance, of hatred, of discrimination, of violence, I really could release my resentment of him. And and love that hadn't been accessible to me. I mean, I experienced myself as having love for my grandparents, but a deeper love that came from this understanding of his own, the way he was shackled, you know, uh, arose in me. And, and I felt more connected to him than I had ever before. He had passed away quite some years before, but I really felt he was with me. And he was experiencing that shift that was happening in me. And, and I just had this feeling like, my grandfather's proud of me. I'm proud of what I'm doing with my life. So in that moment, I wasn't just healing myself, but I was healing my ancestors. I was healing his relationship to me and my brother, to my father. Him in relation to himself. And, um, and I never have felt resentment since that time towards him. Um, it was through dwelling in the moment of 
that experience, present moment, like going into the door of the present moment to access the past, to invite the past into the present that allowed that healing to take place versus Now think of a, of a good analogy, but something like a wave of the past coming and making us, <laughs> pulling us under, right? Where we just lose it and we're just out of the boat, no life jacket, we're down. You know? So it was a, a different kind of way of relating to that, going intentionally and bringing it up. But I had some anchor to keep me from being washed away by that experience. I was anchored in the present, and that's what allowed me to engage with the past in a healing way. So this is possible in many different ways. Uh, and children and young people are, are just as capable as anyone else of learning to do this. Um, I had my cousin's three daughters come and visit me this summer for two weeks. Um, They're 9, 10, and 11. And very lovely girls. And, well, of course, the first few days, you know, everyone was on their best behavior. (laughs) They they are very polite, very... um, they really know how to help their mom. She's been a single mom. And, uh, but as the two weeks wore on, <laughs> we took a long overnight train to Atlanta for a family reunion towards the end of our time. And we had had to wait. The train was delayed. And everyone was cranky. And they had you know, started to fight more and more as the two weeks went on. And there was more and more disharmony. I think they were just more comfortable with, you know, letting it all out. So this was kind of our last leg of the trip, and I was sitting next to the middle um, sister, and the other two were across the aisle, and she really wanted to use her big sister's cell phone. Um, It wouldn't give it to her, and so she was moping and had a big lower lip, and (laughs) you know, <laughs> he was in a bad mood. So I just, and we had been, this whole time we were together, before we would eat, we would go around the circle and say three things we were grateful for. So I was trying to get those five happinesses <laughs> through in, in each day. So we would, they liked that practice a lot. So they would suggest it if I wouldn't. They would say, hey, we need to do the three gratitudes. So they were used to that sense of, how a shift could take place when we, when we do that. So the middle sister was upset, and I turned to her and I said, well, I know you don't feel so happy right now, and I want to ask you to do something with me just as an exercise. I said, tell me one thing you really like about your older sister. And she was able to say something genuine that she liked about her. I said, okay, let's keep going. Tell me something you really like about your younger sister. So she was able to say something really, she she had just been fighting with her a few minutes before, but she was able to say something 
truly good about her younger sister. I was like, okay, now tell me something that's really good about your mom, about your grandmother, about me. <laughs> so I had her list about five or six people. And then I said, okay, now how do you feel? And she said, I feel good. And I could see her face had changed already. So uh, this is also a practice of you're skillfully relating to the past. Yeah. And she, could, she got the, the feedback immediately. Oh, when I do this, my mood shifts. I can do this. I can do this for myself. So the next day, we, we were, so we had arrived in Atlanta. And uh, next day, we had a big brunch with all of our family, about 11, 12 people around the table. And it had taken a while to prepare. It was a very nice breakfast, brunch. And, and the girls, three of them, had been busy doing something. And they said, nobody can eat until we play this game. And everyone was like, oh, we're so hungry. Like, nope, you have to do this. So they put in front of each person's plate a little um, card. And it had someone else's name on it. And they said, OK, before we eat, we have to go around. And you have to say what you like about the person whose name you have at your plate. And so everyone did. And it was such a beautiful gift that they gave us. That they had been learning and cultivating you know, in this two weeks. So this is something that Tai has shared that we should live in such a way that we create a beautiful past. We can live the present moment in such a way that when we look back on it, we are inspired. We smile. We feel a warmth in our heart. Or we have to tell someone, oh, you know, this thing happened something to tell your grandchildren about, right? So each of us can do this. And I tell you another story. Maybe you've heard it before, but four of us, when I was a nun with, in the community with Thai, four of us, we went to South Africa and Botswana to lead retreats and days of mindfulness. And in our group, there was a brother who was Vietnamese origin, but from Canada. And um, in our monastic community, there was a lovely tradition of serving tea, drinking green tea that you have in a little small clay teapot. And you wash it and pour out the first water. Then you'd steep the tea. And you even warm up the glasses with hot water so the glasses are warm. And then you pour in the tea. It's very ceremonial. People take the tea with two hands to show respect, and you smell the tea, you slowly sip the tea. So it's a whole culture in the monastic community of really appreciating drinking tea. So when we arrived, we had a layover in Johannesburg before going on to Habaroni in Botswana. And this, we wanted to use the time to begin to meet and 
look at schedules and how we're going to organize ourselves, who's going to do what. So the brother said, before, you, before we meet, let me serve everyone tea. And so he pulled out this, you know, very fragile, breakable teapot and four glass cups and then a thermos he filled with boiling water. And in my head, I was like, this is so impractical. I would never travel with such <laughs> heavy and breakable things. I'll just bring a tea, a tea bag with me, just keep it simple. <laughs> but, you know, I watched him take care with washing the tea, serving the tea, and he served each of us with two hands. And that's so we just took five minutes or so to just enjoy being served. We relaxed. We appreciated the tea. We were smiling and talking with each other. And, and it shifted very quickly our way of doing our meeting. So we were more open to each other. We were enjoying the moment. So I quickly was like, oh, he's very smart to bring that <laughs> tea set. <laughs> very altruistic. So each, during that whole two weeks, each meeting he would start with serving us tea. He would make really a special moment of just taking time and relaxing and telling a funny story and just being together, not trying to get right down to the work. So the trip was about to end, and we had just finished our family retreat. And um, to celebrate, our hosts were going to take us on an outing a waterfall. So we walked through the forest and, and just, we had to swim across a pond to get to the, the waterfall was coming into the pond. So we were in our, you know, monastic clothes. <laughs> and he, he was swimming with a bag on top of his head. So he only had one hand to swim with. And I thought, why is he doing that? You know? It was hard enough with two hands, it's really cold water. So we got across the pond and we climbed these really high boulders to get to the top of the waterfall. And out comes a teapot and four tea glasses and a thermos of boiling water and he serves all of us tea on top of the waterfall. And remembering that never fails to bring up joy and this sense of someone so determined to create a beautiful moment for all of us. This this living in a way that we create a beautiful past. Really treasuring the people in our lives and seeing how can we celebrate just that we're together. Like my cousins before the brunch. So I will finish there. And thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.